0: Fourth Estate presents The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on a crisp walk through midwinter in its cold, glistening splendor, all the way up to Christmas Day. Along the path, there'll be recipes for some of your festive favorites, and some new ideas too, to excite your palate in the cold months you'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, The Christmas Chronicles. Notes, stories, and a hundred essential recipes for midwinter, as well as some new content that we've recorded here at my home in North London. In this episode, we'll talk about the art of choosing and decorating a perfectly cut Christmas tree, the lights, jewels and baubles that festoon the branches, and its importance as a symbol of the season. I'll also give you my recipe for a fine, fruity chutney to accompany you through the winter months and to brighten those stews, casseroles and pies that sustain us in the cold. 10th of December, choosing the tree. Today, the tip of a fir tree waving over the top of the shutters carried past the house on broad shoulders. Its branches are tied tightly to its trunk with netting, and there is a sound of an excited child or two in tow. I feel they're a little premature, but in truth, I can't wait to join in. Forget making mincemeat and baking the cake. It is only when the tree is finally up, shimmering with lights, that it is officially Christmas. The space outside the greengrocers, the scene of Charles Green's 1854 Balloon Ascent, was once the entrance to a notorious music hall, complete with high-wire acts, masked balls and pantomime. The hall was closed in 1871 due to bawdy behaviour and prostitutes working in the bushes. Nowadays it's far less fun, but it is where each December the local greengrocer sets up a little forest of Christmas trees and one of the several places I go rummaging for the perfect tree. Believe me when I say I've always wanted to join in the last-minute search for the spindliest little runt, the lonesome tree that no-one else wants, and give it a home. I never do. Instead, I embark on a steely, determined hunt for the most symmetrical specimen, complete with evenly spaced branches, the right-coloured needles, the most monumentally thick trunk. Not to mention its need to be deeply aromatic. Freshly cut and generally in fine fettle. It takes two of us to carry the thing into the house and an extra pair of hands to get it standing straight in its stand. The tree is important. In many ways, it is the pivotal point of the festivities, the heart of the Christmas home, the place where the presents are tucked, it scents and lights the room and is the focus of much seasonal merriment. And it is, of course what you are going to stand around and sing carols on Christmas Eve. The tree is the modern-day answer to the fire we used to dance around in more pagan times. One of my favourite bits of the season is seeing other people's trees on social media. I always look forward to Kirsty Allsop retweeting photographs of her followers' trees on Twitter, a delightful spreading of Christmas joy and a reminder of how social media can be used in a positive way. I'm grateful too, to those who generously leave their blinds and shutters open for others to spot their tree, an act of sharing rather than showing off. I had people at my door twice this week asking if they can take my order for a tree which they will deliver directly to the house. Some even offer to put it up, for which we should all be grateful. The delivery service is brilliant for the time short and for those unable to haul a heavy tree home. The downside is that you miss the opportunity of choosing one for yourself. I know choosing a tree sounds as easy as buying a chicken, but in the past I have made life difficult for myself by not thinking ahead. Here are a few pointers that a first-time tree hunter may find useful. Think of it as your gift, a thank you to the house. Measure your ceiling height before you set off. It is surprisingly difficult to gauge whether your tree will fit your room once you're out in the open. Those scratches on my ceiling? Well, that's how they got there. Allow an extra 15 to 20 centimetres or so for the tree stand, and don't forget to include the height of your angel, fairy or star. Clear a space in the room where the tree will live before you go. It will make life much easier. Ideally somewhere where the branches won't be constantly knocked every time someone walks past. Avoid the risk of your tree drying out, or even catching a light, by sighting it away from radiators and fires. Obvious, I know, but I once had a neighbour who gutted his drawing room through a thoughtlessly placed tree. Measure your tree stand. You'll probably have to trim the trunk anyway, but you don't want one whose trunk is way too wide for the stand. Ideally... It should have a reservoir for water. Wear gloves. Some species of trees are surprisingly prickly. Take a friend, if only to help you turn over the umpteenth candidate for inspection and to share the weight on the trek home. The nearer it gets to Christmas Day, the more likely the sellers are to be busy and not have the time to help you get it into the car. A straight trunk is essential. A wonky tree is the very devil to put up and its lopsidedness will bug you all Christmas. Look out for official signs and tree tags from a recognised tree association and avoid those roadside pop-up merchants. The tree may have been illegally cut. Yes, it goes on at the dead of night. Elderly, or just a bit crap. Look for one that has been freshly cut, with no sign of drying to the needles. Shiny perky needles are an encouraging sign. Shake the tree firmly. There will inevitably be some falling needles, but more than a few is not a good omen. Crush a few needles in the palm of your hand. They should smell deeply fragrant. Go for a tree that feels heavy. A light tree may be drying out. A firm knock on the ground before packing should remove any loose needles. Get the tree netted to keep it compact during the journey and don't be tempted to remove the wrapping until you are indoors. Once the net is removed the branches will splay out and may be wider than your front door. The tree can only take up water from a fresh cut, so soar a centimetre or two from the base as soon as you get it home. It's probably best to do this outside. Don't strip the bark from the base of the trunk. The bark is needed to absorb the water. Leave the tree overnight before decorating, giving the branches time to relax back into their natural shape. We all like a drink at Christmas. So does your tree. Water it daily, especially during the first couple of weeks. They need a good one to two litres a day, like us. Ignore any advice about feeding your tree aspirin and the like to keep it fresh. Believe me, popping an neurofen won't make the slightest bit of difference to your tree. Water the tree at night, with the lights switched off at the mains. If you bought a potted tree, keep it moist but not soaking wet. In order for a tree to emerge from Christmas in a fit state to survive being planted out, it needs to be kept cool for the entire time. Central heating is the death of most firs. Varieties of Christmas Tree There is no more a single variety of Christmas tree than there is a single variety of apple. The choice will depend on whether you prefer your tree slim or fat, greeny blue or emerald, with round or pointed needles, ...tightly packed branches... ...or wide-spaced for low-hanging baubles. There are majestic, highly-priced trees at garden centres... ...budget-priced, uniformly-sized examples on the supermarket aisles... ...and sweet-potted versions at local florists. You can buy them ready-cut, or growing in soil... ...conveniently wedged into a wooden stand... ...or, somewhat sadly in my opinion, ready-decorated. In other words... There is a tree for every home and every purse. Norway spruce, Picea abys. The tree of Victorian Christmas cards, glittering with tinsel and real candles, and the one that most of us think of as the Christmas tree. The Norway spruce has fine, sharp needles of a mid to dark green, and its bark is often a deep red-brown. If it comes with cones, which is unlikely, they will hang down like long, elegant baubles. One of the most aromatic of trees, it was the one chosen by Prince Albert for Victoria in 1841, thus introducing the German habit of decorating a tree at Christmas. The upward-pointing branches are particularly good for hanging decorations and displaying tinsel. It dislikes overheating and is the ideal variety for those who like to put up a tree outside, simply decorated with white lights and who can remember to water it. Rather prickly, it is sadly a needle dropper, with a short lifespan once cut. It can look rather sad and moth-eaten by Twelfth Night. The Norway spruce is the one Norway gives us each year, mainly as a thank you for our help during the Second World War. It is the splendid tree that lights up Trafalgar Square, a focus for carol singers. I take slight issue with those responsible for decorating it, the lights used are often too big. If you want an old-fashioned Christmas, have a cool room or outdoor space, and a water-retaining tree stand, then this is the one for you. Your vacuum cleaner will be horrified, though. Nordmann fir, Abies Nordmanniana. Introduced into Britain in the mid-19th century, the Nordmann is named after Finnish zoologist Alexander von Nordmann, a professor of botany at Odessa he also has a butterfly named after him, a ghostly white, black and grey one with deep amber spots. I've chosen a Nordman for this house for quite a few years now, appreciating its symmetry and highly aromatic scent. Originally from Russia, the Nordman is one of Denmark's most popular trees, wide and generously bushy, although being a slow grower is understandably on the expensive side. Barely a needle drops from mine while he's indoors, even though I often forget to water it. The one I used outside last year was still bright and bushy-tailed in March. What works for me are the wide-layered branches that allow the decorations to hang unimpeded and the flat, soft, silvery green needles. It's the one that children can decorate without fear of being spiked. A handsome tree with a great lower girth. It gives the impression of a whirling dervish at full tilt. Blue spruce, Picea pungens. Germany's most popular tree, a striking silvery blue-green, with robust branches as prickly as a bottle brush. Native to the rocky mountains of America, but now widely grown, this variety is delightfully fragrant, with good needle retention, as long as it's kept fairly cool. A bold and visually stunning tree. Many of the branches end in several short, stubby fingers, giving plenty of hanging space for your treasures. Fraser Fir, Abies fraseri. The Fraser Fir, named after John Fraser, a Scots botanist, has a fine pyramid shape, compact with tightly packed branches. Having a narrower base than the Nordman, it suits a limited space. This is America's most favoured tree and is traditionally the one in the White House. The Fraser is a highly scented variety with a delicate citrus note. The non-drop glossy needles have a green-blue sheen to them with a silvery underneath. This one often has a bit of a lean to the growing tip, which might make your fairy feel a bit pissed, but adds a certain charm. A slow-growing gorgeous tree, it is a good one to buy pot-grown for planting outside once its moment in the candlelight is over. Scots pine, Pinus sylvestris, a fragrant, soft-needled tree with a blue-green colour. This is our only native timber-producing conifer. In the wild, it sports long, down-pointing cones. Handsome, even stately when left to grow, this is a lovely tree to have in your house at Christmas, though not as easy to find as you might expect. Serbian spruce. Picea omorika Central Europe's favorite tree, tall and slim with down-hanging medium-length cones, native to eastern Bosnia and Herzegovina. It sports particularly long and delicate branches, perfectly suited to simple, elegant decorations. Sometimes called Omora, it has a sweet fragrance, though its needle retention is not the best. Noble fir Aby's procera. Introduced to Britain in the 1830s, this can grow to a great height in the forests of Oregon and Washington. Non-drop, aromatic, softly spiked leaves of a gorgeous bluey green. This variety has a long taproot, so is unlikely to be found pot-grown. The lodgepole pine, Pinus contorta. A faintly spiced orange meets pine scent and its superb ability to keep its needles, are reason's enough to choose this variety. Its name, by the way, comes from its strong, straight trunk, capable of holding up teepees and lodges. The minor downside is its slightly open, unconventional shape and vivid green colour. I must mention the existence of the British Christmas Tree Association and its 320 members. Each tree will carry a log kite mark an assurance that the tree has been grown and sold to the highest standards. They have a contest for grower of the year. Some companies within the association work with charitable trusts such as TreeAid, which helps with planting trees in Africa. Spotting someone carrying a Christmas tree is rather like watching a person with a bag of crisps. I need one immediately. This year, as usual, I asked my friend Katie, who does so much work in my garden, to help she can spot a sound, freshly cut tree from 20 feet away. I end up with a beauty, a handsome, symmetrical tree, a Nordman, that looks and smells everything I could have hoped for. We drag it into the house, manoeuvring it through the obstacle course of the hall and its fireplace, and manage to fit it into its pot, for once, without any damage to the walls. I've given up with tree stands. They work perfectly well for most trees, but I've had difficulty in the past finding one strong enough to hold a large tree securely. Instead, I use a leak-proof tin for water inside an enormous terracotta pot full of rocks, which I then cover with hessian. The tree is lowered into the tin, then the rocks are wedged in around it. You need three people: one to hold the tree upright, another to stand a few feet away checking that the trunk is perpendicular, and a third to wedge in the rocks around the base. We actually use old sets, the square grey cobbles used for pathways, which we bought from a building supply store. Such preparation may seem over the top, but having had a tree collapse, I feel safe is better than sorry. Braces and belts and all that. I water our splendid new addition to the house generously and leave it overnight before decorating. The branches have been tied up in netting for a while, need several hours to relax back into their natural position, and if by any chance you come downstairs during the night, you will be met with the citrus pine note of freshly cut Christmas tree, a smell that is both ancient and fresh, clean and homely, the scent of forests and snow. 11th of December, decorating the tree under lamb roast. The winter I was nine seemed no different to any other. I'd taken a day off school to make decorations from the house, a paper chain or two and some foil garlands. Mum, who had no time for pushy parenting, had happily given me a sick note for the day, and we sat together at the kitchen table, needles of icy rain pattering against the leaded windows, cutting, folding and gluing. I made a string of leaves from red and green foil and paper chains from wrapping paper. That evening, my father turned up from work with an eight-foot tree. I stood there, jigging up and down with excitement, while he cursed as he attempted to secure the trunk in its stand. My mother doubled up with laughter. I had no idea it would turn out to be our last Christmas together. We kept the decorations in the attic, a long tunnel of a room that ran the length of the house and was known as the bogey hole. The trip up the wobbly ladder to get there terrified me. Low-ceilinged, with dark beams, A single light bulb and a floor that creaked like a coffin lid in a horror film, the attic was filled with temptation and terror. Each dusty cardboard box was home to gaudy baubles wrapped in old newspaper, curled strands of tinsel, and a tangle of fairy lights. There was a brass candle holder with angels that spun round once the candles were lit, dusty globes decorated with grim, fading faces, a box of wooden marionettes with a nest of strings. Pelham puppet frogs and a discarded wooden pinky and perky that regularly featured in my childhood nightmares. The boxes were passed down one by one and I rustled my way through each piece of crumpled newspaper to find my favourite decorations. A glass Santa, a string of plastic cups each with a bulb inside and decorated with a scene from a nursery rhyme. A box of small, slightly tarnished globes, each with an indentation on one side whose striations caught the light and a squash-foiled star that stood in for an angel to top the tree. It was the one night of the year I was allowed to stay up beyond nine o'clock and I relished it. Each decoration had a special place with certain favoured bulbs coming to the front. My father's coloured birds got a look in too, but only to appease him. I liked decorations that reflected the light and made the hall glisten and shine. I take as much trouble in cladding the branches now as I did then. To this day, I take time unwrapping the tree decorations, greeting each one like an old friend. I put carols on, open a bottle of something nice and decorate the tree, commandeering the help of anyone else in the house at the time. And yes, I move any less than thoughtfully considered additions after they've left. This year, there are a few new jewels with which to festoon the branches. Antique-painted balls I picked up in Cologne, sugar cookies from Nuremberg, and single strands of tinsel from the Tyrol. If I hadn't collected decorations for years, I would use nothing more than white lights. No balls, no lanterns, no ribbons. It's hard to imagine a tree more lovely than one threaded with nothing but a single tiny strand of white lights. But I secretly hanker after Queen Victoria's 1850s overladen tree, its candles flickering against the crimson walls. 12th of December, a fine and fruity chutney. Chutney, the ever-useful sour-sweet splodge for sharpening up slices of cold-roast lamb or a wedge of pork pie, is one of those recipes that changes over time. What appears a little acidic as it simmers in the pot will often as not calm down after a few weeks in a jar on the shelf. Even a week trapped in a glass storage jar allows the fruit, vinegar, spices and aromatics a chance to mellow. Sour, sweet and spicy become one harmonious mixture rather than opposites fighting for supremacy. Best make it now then. Some form of vinegar-based pickle is a fine thing to have to hand in the winter, It can balance the slightly soporific character of casseroles, pies and stews. A spot of chutney can perk up a shepherd's pie, no end. The essential quality of a chutney, and the main reason it is worth making our own, is that it should dazzle. It should be alive and kicking, the punch of chillies and red wine vinegar, of lemon juice and sour apple, with a soft, mysterious depth provided by soft brown sugars and fruit. I need a couple of jars that I can make any time, their recipe not being tied to the fruit of any particular season. A tracklement that will be as happy nudging up to a lump of cheddar as it will to a slice of cold roast turkey. James decides to make inroads into the vast amounts of dried apricots I seem to have accumulated. Sod's law, my larder has either a dearth or a surfeit of something, rather than the right amount. What emerges from his afternoon of quiet bubbling is a preserve the colour of a winter sunset. Tart little apricots becalmed in a sea of soft, sweet onion, cider vinegar and Bramley apple. And now a recipe. Apricot and tomato chutney. This makes two large jars. A red onion, a yellow onion, olive oil, four tablespoons... Dried apricots, 450 grams. Root ginger, 25 grams. That's a thumb-sized lump. A lemon. Golden caster sugar, 200 grams. Cider vinegar, 250 milliliters. Bramley or other sharp apples, two. Yellow or orange cherry tomatoes, 200 grams. And a pomegranate. Peel the onions then halve and cut each half into quarters. Separate the layers of onion. Warm the olive oil in a deep, heavy-based pan. Add the onions and let them cook for 10 to 15 minutes or until soft and translucent. Cut the dried apricots in half and add to the onions. Then peel and finely grate in the ginger and the lemon zest. Stir in the caster sugar. Then, as the mixture starts to bubble, Introduce the cider vinegar. Partially cover with a lid and leave over a low heat. Peel the apples, quarter and core them, then roughly chop. Add the apples to the pan, then the juice of the lemon. Once the apples have started to collapse, halve the cherry tomatoes and stir them in. Add salt, and if you wish, some coarsely ground black pepper, then bottle and seal you should get a couple of decent jars out of it. You could easily eat this the next day, but it will keep, depending on the trouble you go to seal it, sterilized jars please, for a good few weeks in a cool place. Sometimes I crack a pomegranate and add its ruby seeds to the chutney at the table. Note to self, wrapping paper, sticky tape. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Christmas Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. The Christmas Chronicles, notes, stories, and 100 essential recipes for midwinter is available now in hardback, audio, and ebook, and published by Fourth Estate. Join me again in our next chapter as we delve further into the season and I share some more recipes and wintered stories.